Hello friends, thank you for joining us this evening. I'm your host, Zen Garcia. Welcome and blessings, everybody. I hope that life finds you well and blessed and of good health and well-being wherever you may be in this world. I hope that um, it's not too, too cold. I'm glad that even though we are in the coldest part and months of the year, that at least the days are getting longer and I think we're gaining four more minutes of sunshine every day, and so we are inching closer and closer to spring. It shouldn't be, but even three, four weeks, and I'll start to see growth on the rose bushes outside of my house. So exciting times, and that's always the first indicator of spring, and and then watching the Bartlett pear trees and the cherry blossoms and the dogwoods and all of those come into bloom. My favorite time of the year. But uh, at least during the winter, we do have time to stay inside and get a lot of things accomplished, a lot of work done. And, and then, um, you know, in preparation for the coming warm season and all the blooming and the growth and all the animals uh, mating and a season of growth. So looking forward to all of that. But this evening we are going to continue our study on what is the Archico volume, which is our book of the month. And it's one that my daughter-in-law, Joy, worked so diligently upon for several weeks, maybe even several months uh, to get properly formatted so that we could release it out to you. And it has turned out to be a really incredible book, beautiful in presentation. The cover is just spectacular and all the information is unmatched. I mean, it is really uh, a jewel, one that is mostly unknown. People are very much unfamiliar with this work, and because it is messianic in nature, just like the uh, Book of Enoch and others, like the Testament of the Twelve Patriarchs, it is denied by a great majority of those that you know, especially the the Jews and those that are uh, don't accept Yahushua as the prophetic fulfillment of the coming of Messiah, and because of that, there is controversy around the veracity, the authenticity of this particular manuscript. But in reading it, it is deeply moving, and for me. Without a doubt, it is um, Holy Spirit-inspired. And reading it and studying it and hearing about the eyewitness of 
not just the uh, the shepherds in Bethlehem or from Joseph and Mary, but also the apostles, Peter and Paul, and the Pharisees that were very much against and uncertain as to the coming of Christ and God incarnating into flesh form as you know, the only begotten son. Uh, these things have been um, controversial, to say the least, over the centuries and in the time that this material has come to light and made its way into public consideration. And so this will be the fourth part and this evening, we're going to follow up on where we had let off with Caiaphas, the high priest, um, and his presentation to the Sanhedrin on the reasons why he crucified Yehushua, and also as to his witness and the story and the rumor surrounding the resurrection of Messiah, as well as going into the next part, it will be the witness of Pontius Pilate and his testimony to um, Tiberius Caesar, which both of these accounts are fascinating, and especially from two viewpoints, two perspectives that were at that time yet unbelievers and you know certainly um Pontius Pilate was not a believer even though he did convert and was martyred for his faith and you can find a fulfillment of that in a complete narrative in the Gospel of Gamaliel on the lament of the Virgin and the martyrdom of Pontius Pilate. It is also another one of those manuscripts which covers in great detail the passion of Christ, his resurrection and his ascension. And yet, you know, these manuscripts are little known to majority opinion to mainstream Christianity which is you know why we do the work that we do at Sacred Word Publishing in order to entice you to pique your interest with regard to the information that has been available but which has been largely condemned and largely forgotten, forbidden, and overlooked. And so uh, we want you to be able to read, study, and you know consider this material for your own faith and your own relationship in Christ as Savior and also as the 
way and the path to salvation. And so let me um, log in here to Truth Frequency really quickly. Should have already done that, but I had to open the manuscript. And so welcome, everybody. Hello, Bam and Lan and Rio uh, in the TFR chat room. Also know that you can join us on our YouTube uh, live stream. And that here we have, you know, there's a, a lot of individuals. And so if you want to join a larger chat and a larger dialogue amongst um, family in Christ, just go to the Zen Garcia YouTube channel and we live stream the shows there. But anyways, let me go ahead and get into this manuscript. I did read from the first couple of chapters and the last portion of the show, the third segment that we did. So I'm going to pick up here from Caiaphas in his address to the Sanhedrin. All right. He says, To you, masters of Israel, as I have made a former defense to you and you have approved the same, I feel in duty bound to communicate to you some facts that have come to my knowledge. Since that communication, a few days after the execution of Jesus of Nazareth, the report of his resurrection from the dead became so common that I found it necessary to investigate it. Because the excitement was more intense than before, and my own life as well as that of Pilate was in danger. I sent for Malchus, the captain of the royal city guard, who informed me he knew nothing. Personally, as he had placed Isham in command of the guard. But what from, from what he could learn from the soldiers, the scene was awe-inspiring, and the report was so generally believed that it was useless to deny it. He thought my only chance was to suppress it among the soldiers and have John and Peter banished to Crete or arrested and imprisoned. And if they would not be quiet, to treat them as I had treated Jesus. He said that all the soldiers he had conversed with were convinced that Jesus was resurrected by supernatural power and was still living and that he was no human being for the light and the angels and the dead that came out of their graves. All went to prove that something had happened that never 
had occurred on earth before. He said that John and Peter were spreading it all over the country and that if Jesus would appear at the head of a host and declare for the king of the Jews, he believed that all the Jews would fight for him. I sent for the lieutenant who gave a lengthy account of the currents that morning, all of which I suppose you have learned and will investigate. From this, I am convinced that something transcending the laws of nature took place that morning that cannot be accounted for upon natural laws. And I find it is useless to try to get any of the soldiers to deny it, for they are so excited that they cannot be reasoned with. I regret that I had the soldiers placed at the tomb, for the very things that they were to prevent, they have helped to establish. After questioning the soldiers and the officers to my satisfaction, my mind being so disturbed that I could neither eat nor sleep. I sent for John and Peter. They came and brought Mary and Johanna, who are the women that went to embalm Jesus' body the morning of the resurrection, as it is called. They were very interesting as they related the circumstances. Mary says that when they went, day was just breaking. They met the soldiers returning from the sepulcher and saw nothing strange until they came to the tomb and found that it was empty. The stone that covered the sepulcher was rolled to one side, and two men dressed in flowing white were sitting, one at each end of the sepulcher. Mary asked them, Where was her Lord? They said, He is risen from the dead. Did he not tell you he would rise the third day? and show himself to the people to prove that he was the Lord of life. Go tell his disciples, said they. Johanna said she saw but one man, but this discrepancy must have been due to their excitement because they say they were much alarmed. They both say that as they returned, they met the master who told them that he was the resurrection and the life. All that will accept shall be resurrected from the second death. 
We fell at his feet, all bathed in tears. And when we rose up, he was gone. Both these women wept for joy while relating these circumstances. And John shouted aloud, which made me tremble in every limb. For I could not help thinking that something that was the exclusive work of God had occurred. But what it all meant was a great mystery to me. It might be, I said, that God had sent this message by the mouth of this stranger. It might be that he was uh, the seed of the woman and we, his people, had executed him. I want to stop there for just a second and remark um, a comment on what Caiaphas is alluding to here. And this is the first prophecy in the... Hold on one second. This is the first prophecy in the book of Genesis. Uh, excuse me while I sip some water. If you remember in Genesis 3.15, there is the prophecy of the enmity that would come to bear between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And it was what the father, Yahuwah, had said to the serpent upon his beguiling Eve and impregnating her with Cain, who, of course, is the seed of the serpent. And we see that there is also mention of the seed of the woman. It says, And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed, it shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. And so this prophecy was actually fulfilled on the morning, well, the afternoon of Christ's crucifixion as the Passover lamb, that 3 p.m. that day, uh, crucified, hanging on the cross, he had succumbed to death. But in the process of being stretched out and being nailed to the cross, that he was actually crushing 
the head of the serpent in that Goliath, when David had hit him with the sling stone and then running up to him, used his sword to remove his head, that David took Goliath's skull as trophy to parade it through the streets of Jerusalem and to let all of the residents know, learn, and become familiar that he, as the son of Jesse, had succeeded in slaughtering and killing the Philistine champion and giant, Goliath. And so, without a doubt, Goliath is and was part of the Nephilim bloodline, which made up the seed of the serpent and the children of perdition. And so, this is what Caiaphas is here alluding to when he says, I said that God had sent this message by the mouth of this stranger. It might be that he was the seed of the woman, and we, his people, had executed him. And so he's acknowledging the story of the, what was the resurrection and how that was the fulfillment of the Genesis 3.15 prophecy. Because with Goliath's skull being 1,400 years, 1,600 years earlier, buried there in the spot that Christ would later hang um, it's undeniable and so you know I explained this in really great detail in the ancient prophecies of Christ uh, the crushing the the head of the serpent and so you can read about uh, and also in the enmity between the seed lines, the great contest too, if you want to know more about the prophetic fulfillment of that particular verse and passage. All right, continuing. I asked John and Peter if they could give me any further evidence in regard to this man that I wish to be informed of his private history. Peter said that Jesus passed by where he was and bade him to follow him, and he felt attracted to him. But at first it was more through curiosity than anything in the man that he soon became acquainted with Mary, who told him that he was her son, and related to him the strange circumstances of his birth, and that she was convinced that he was to be the king of the Jews. She spoke 
of many things concerning his life, which made Peter feel more interested in him than he would have been otherwise. He said that Jesus was a man so pleasant in his character and so like a child and innocent that no one could help liking him. After he got acquainted with him, that though he seemed to be stern and cold, he was not so in reality, that he was exceedingly kind, especially to the poor, that he would make any sacrifice for the sick and the needy, and would spare no effort to impart knowledge to anyone that would call on him. His knowledge was so profound that he had seen him interrogated by the most learned doctors of the law, and he always gave the most perfect satisfaction and that the Sofer or scribes and the Hillelites and the Shemites were afraid to open their mouths in his presence. They had attacked him so often and been repelled that they shunned him as they would a wolf. But when he had repelled them, he did not enjoy the triumph as they did over others of whom they had gotten the ascendancy alright we'll be right back everyone From the dawn of man, we have turned to nature to help attain balance within ourselves. But somewhere, we lost our way. Western culture is once again remembering the healing benefits of CBD, the non-psychoactive component of the hemp plant. That's why more and more people who use CBD report relief from inflammation and chronic pain, balanced blood sugar and cardiovascular system, relief from muscle tensions, tremors, migraines, headaches, anxiety, depression, and the list goes on. The big question is, where do you get it? Iolife is a 99% pure CBD oil made with all organic ingredients, and it's available to TFR listeners worldwide. If you use coupon code TFR at checkout, you'll get $5 towards your order. Head on over to iolife.com now. That's A-Y-A, life.com. Hey, folks. Guess what the number one phrase that Life Change Tea receives by email? You ready? We love this tea. We love this tea. Time after time, week after week, we love this tea. Life Change Tea gives you more energy, a beautiful cleansing, and fulfills its slogan perfectly. The tea that makes you go. 
So if you want to be on your health game, log on to GetTheTea.com and order Life Change Super Strength Tea. Packages come in a one-month supply, and when you brew this stuff, wait until you see the results. Aren't we all about the results? And with a lot of people's health struggling, we can use a little bit of help. Doctors will tell you, disease starts in the gut. So log on to GetTheTea.com. That's GetTheTea.com. Be our next email saying, I love this tea. I mean, I love this tea. Get the tea at GetTheTea.com. Helping America one tea bag at a time. Fear is the mind killer. Fear is the little death. This is Uncle Walt from the Ironworks. Josh, Corey, and I have chosen to look at life with no fear. No fear of the unknown. No fear of questions about the supposedly well-known. No fear of ridicule for thinking outside the familiar fool's lines. No fear of the boot on the neck of those refusing the party line. No fear of taking on those so convinced of their beliefs they would sooner drink the Kool-Aid than believe they've been fools made. In this world filled with me too, cattle think, can truth's protective layers be peeled back to show the tender, juicy pink? Are we all just grist for the mill? Souls sold against our will, or is that just how it feels? When you're filled to the rim, TVality is so clear, filled and grim, break clear of the fear, right here. Tuesdays and Fridays at 2 a.m. on TFR. Josh and I and you will hammer out the impurities of technology-driven groupthink, fold in a dash of logic, and quench it all with a bit of absurdity. The Ironworks, break clear of the fear. Real people, real radio. Initiating the truth frequency. This is Truth Frequency Radio. And in those days, there were giants in the land. And the sons of the angels of God looked upon the daughters of men and found them fair. And took of their wives, and their sons became of old great men of renown. So they have been mixing with us on a genetic level since the time of Enoch and Ezekiel's will. Heaven earth were retrieved by the sun, moon, and stars And imagine that's got to be planets like ours So conceive of a face on the surface of Mars So in need of a meaning and purpose we fall And indeed they believe that these might be our gods Or that maybe with time we'll do right and evolve And eventually reach what they seek And then solve all the problems of man But they really don't know that they call And the works of our hands are but just filthy rags So we travel the lands to dig up our past time on that all right welcome back everybody for second portion um hello everybody in the chat room and thank you for joining us we greatly appreciate all of you and we will continue with the reading um if you have a question or if you'd like to make a comment just do so at the end of the segment uh, during the commercial break, and I will review it and, um, you know, possibly even share it with everybody. All right. Continuing. As to his private life, he seemed not to be a man of pleasure nor of sorrow. He mingled with society to benefit it, and yet took no part at all in what was going on. I had heard many tell of what occurred when he was baptized. 
And from what his mother told me, I was watching for a display of his divine power, if he had any, for I knew he could never be king of the Jews unless he did have help from on high. Once, when we were attending a marriage feast, the wine gave out, and his mother told him of it, and he said to the men to fill up some water pots that were sitting near, and they put in nothing but water, for I watched them. But when they poured it out, it was wine, for it was tasted by all at the feast. And when the master found it out, he called for Jesus to honor him, but he had disappeared. It seemed that he did not want to be popular, and the spirit displeased us. For we knew if he was to be king of the Jews, he must become popular with the Jews. His behavior angered his mother, for she was doing all she could to bring him into notice and to make him popular among the people. And the people could not help liking him. when they saw him. Another peculiarity was that in his presence, everyone felt safe. There seemed to be an almighty power pervading the air wherever he went so that everyone felt secure and believed that no harm could befall them if Jesus were present. As we were in our fishing boat, I saw Jesus coming out toward us, walking on the water. I knew that if he could make the waves support him, he could me also. I asked him if I might come to him. He said to me to come. But when I saw the waves gathering around me, I began to sink and I asked him to help me. He lifted me up and told me to have faith in God. On another occasion, we were sailing on the sea, and there was a great storm. It blew at a fearful rate, and all on board thought they would be lost. We awakened the master, and when he saw the raging of the storm, He stretched out his hand and said, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased to blow. The thunder stopped. The lightning withdrew. And the billowing sea seemed as quiet as a babe in its mother's arms. All done in one moment of time. This I saw with my own eyes. And from that time, I was convinced that he was not a common man. Neither did he work by enchantment like the Egyptian, the Murdigis. For in all their tricks, they never attacked the laws of nature. In vain might they order the thunder to hush or the winds to abate 
or the lightnings to cease their flashing. Again, I saw this man. While we were passing from Jericho, there was a blind man who cried out to him for mercy. And Jesus said to me, Go, bring him near. And when I brought him near, Jesus asked him what he wanted. He said he wanted to see him. Jesus said, Receive thy sight. And when he was not near enough for Jesus to lay his hands upon him or use any art, thus were all his miracles performed. He did not act as the Egyptian necromancers. They used vessels such as cups, bags, jugs, and many other things to deceive. Jesus used nothing but his simple speech and in such a way that all could understand him. And it seemed as if the laws of nature were his main instruments of action and that nature was obedient to him as a slave as to his master. I recall another occasion when a young man was dead and Jesus loved his sisters. One of them went with Jesus to the tomb. He commanded it to be uncovered. The sister said, Master, by this time, he is offensive. He has been dead for four days. Jesus said, Only have faith. And he called the young man by name. And then he came forth out of the tomb and is living today. And Peter proposed that I should see him for myself. And thus argue Peter and John. If Jesus had such power over nature and nature's laws and power over death and others, he would have such power over death that he could lay down his life and take it up again. As he said he would do. As he proposes to bring hundreds of witnesses to prove all he says, and much more witnesses whose veracity cannot be doubted. And as I had heard many of these things before from different men, both friends and foes, and all those these things are related by his friends, that is, the friends of Jesus. Yet these men talk like men of truth, 
and their testimony corroborates other evidence that I have from other sources. Corroborates other evidence that I have found from other sources that convinces me that this is something that should not be rashly dealt with. And seeing the humble trust and confidence of these men and women, besides, as John says, thousands of others equally strong in their belief, it throws me into great agitation. I feel some dreadful foreboding await upon my heart. I cannot feel as a criminal from the fact that I was acting according to my best judgment with the evidence before me. I feel that I was acting in defense of God and my country. which I love better than my life. And if I was mistaken, I was honest in my mistake. And as we teach that honesty of purpose gives character to the action, on this basis I shall try to clear myself of any charge, yet there is conscious fear about my heart so that I have no rest day or night. I feel sure that if I should meet Jesus, I would fall dead at his feet. And it seemed to me, if I went out, I should be sure to meet him. In this state of conscious dread, I remained investigating the scriptures to know more about the prophecies concerning this man, but found nothing to satisfy my mind. I locked my door and gave the guards orders to let no man in, to let no one come in without first giving me notice. While thus engaged, with no one in the room but my wife and Annas, her father, when I lifted up my eyes, behold, Jesus of Nazareth stood before me. My breath stopped. My blood ran cold. And I was in the act of falling when he spoke and said, be not afraid, it is I. You condemn me that you might go free. Thus, this is the work of my father. Your only wrong is 
You have a wicked heart. This must you must repent of. This last lamb you have slain is the one that was appointed before the foundation. This sacrifice is made for all men. Your other lambs were for those who offered them. This is for all. This is the last. It is for you if you will accept it. I died that you and all mankind might be saved. At this, he looked at me with such melting tenderness that it seemed to me I was nothing but tears and my strength was all gone. I fell on my face at his feet as one that was dead. And when an Annas lifted me up, Jesus was gone. And the door still locked. No one could tell when or where he went. So, noble masters, I do not feel that I can officiate as priest anymore. If this strange personage is from God and should prove to be the Savior, we have looked for so long and I have been the means of crucifying him. I have no further offerings to make for sin. But I will wait and see how these things will develop. And if he proves to be the ruler that we are looking for, they will soon develop into something more grand in the future. His glory will increase. His influence will spread wider and wider until the whole earth shall be full of his glory and all the kingdoms of the world shall be his dominion. Such are the teachings of the prophets on this subject. Therefore, you will appoint Jonathan or someone to fill the holy place. All right, that was the testament of uh, Caiaphas. But there is a note here from Mayan, who was the one that had received this manuscript, and then going to Jerusalem, searched for it and found it, and confirmed it to be authentic. Anyways, that whole story 
is in the preceding Ford, and it explains uh, how he was able to get his hands on this manuscript and to be able to share it with the world. And so what we have is a modern copy, a modern translation of that very ancient eyewitness testimony. And, um, you know, this particular manuscript is absolutely mind-blowing when you give consideration to its contents. Also, I, I apologize. My eyes are really tired and because um, I had two shows last night. I did one from 8 to 10 with my son, and then I did one from midnight to 2 a.m. with Rob, and we did a lot of reading. And so um, yeah, the words are... Well, you you know sometimes how your eyes bug out when you're trying to read, and so I'm trying to focus, but it, some of it ends up a little bit blurry. And so anyways, um, I should be able to get through this next hour with no problem. And then I have a few days off um, from having to read, and so I will give my eyes a rest and then I should be prepared for next week. All right. This portion here is chapter eight. Volesius is notes acta Pilati or Pilate's report to Caesar of the arrest trial and the crucifixion of Jesus. Now, there was a... Um, many of you know that I've done some shows on the physical description where I've shared the physical description of Yahushua, what you know, Jesus Christ looked like according to the ancient narratives. And this is one of those manuscripts that there's a report from the Gospel of Gamaliel, which again is the most lengthy discourse on uh, just the Crucifixion, the Passion of Christ, the Gospel of Gamaliel. But in that narrative, it does give a, you know, a physical description of what Yahushua looks like. This is also found in the Pontius Pilate portion of what is the Hebrew story. of the Passion of Christ. 
and all that he had gone through and was forced to endure. It's, um, you know, the Gospel of Gamaliel, the lament of the Virgin, and the martyrdom of Pontius Pilate. It also is a very deeply moving text, especially when it comes to the interaction of Jesus, Yahushua, with his mother and how he was so concerned for her and that when he left and resurrected to the throne of the Most High, He was he was concerned for her, he was worried for her, which was really beautiful to see in their relating. And so anyways, this portion also uh, I believe has a physical description of that. And so what I'm gonna do um probably a couple weeks in after this show is I'm going to do um, a show where I cover the ancient physical description of Christ and what he was said to look like. And I know that this is another one of those topics which is greatly controversial for many people, and that there are entire movements out there based upon what people believe Christ to have looked like. And that some even believe that, you know, only a certain people or a certain group or a certain color of believer will get to enter into paradise but i don't i don't believe that at all i feel that the the true believers and the elect the, the wheat that they represent all people groups male and female created he them and you know the Holy Spirit being the feminine aspect of the Godhead, the male and the female being part of that, um, that, you know, we are all equal as the family of Christ and different colors, different genders, different nationalities, different peoples, different builds, different, you know, idealisms, ideologies, and so we're almost at break, and so I'll pick up this portion when we come back from the top of the hour break. And I will go ahead and check, too, if you have any questions all right let's see 
Uh, thank you. I appreciate that. Yes, I do hope to get some good rest and sleep in the rain. Uh, has also been bothering me. It does cause me some pain. But If you have questions, put them in the chat room right now. I'll be right back, everyone, for a second hour. Truth Frequency Radio is your number one source for news and information without the hate, hype, and fear. We're proud to feature cutting-edge programs like The Critic. As a bookstore for truth seekers, it's our goal to make ancient manuscripts which were once held captive by secretive institutions available for public consideration. In our generation where wisdom has increased as Daniel the prophet foretold, we have access to many of the testimonies our early church brethren were persecuted for preserving. After being hidden for centuries, these manuscripts have been leaked from various sources throughout the earth and it's our goal to gather these sources into printable form to make available for all who seek the ancient way. If you're looking to deepen your studies of the biblical narrative, find these ancient manuscripts and more at sacredwordpublishing.com. partnership with Sacred Word Publishing goes further than the publishing of ancient manuscripts and weekly video content. You also make a huge impact across the earth in orphanages in Myanmar, India, Uganda, and Kenya. Your support is crucial for the development of the Ecclesia of Real Truth Seekers. We thank you for joining us in hosting Secrets Revealed, Momentary Zen, the Digital Readers Club, Ask Me Anything series, and other shows that have helped lead so many to the truth of salvation. Become even more involved? Please visit patreon.com slash sacredwordpublishing where you can partake in exclusive, interactive, patron-only content and help us continue shining the light of love in this darkened world. Many truth seekers are constantly studying alone. But there is a place where we can come together. The Digital Readers Club is our online ecclesia, meant for those who've forsaken churchianity, but still want the closeness of a family to study with. Join us every Saturday at 7 p.m. Eastern Time to put together the puzzle pieces of truth scattered throughout the ancient scriptures.
Hello friends, thank you for joining us this evening. I'm your host, Zen Garcia. everybody for a second hour and I uh, hope you are enjoying the show um, again I think that this manuscript is um, very interesting and very compelling and that certainly for believers uh, it is one of those that can really reinforce your faith and reassure you of the truth of you know why it is that we believe in Christ as Messiah and why we know and understand that salvation is through him all right I'm just checking the chat room really quick A question from Spring Moore. I'm just wondering how close we are to seeing the Antichrist rise and what Jesus actually looked like. In my mind, I see a golden-skinned, dark-haired, dark-eyed man, even though most photos show a light man. Well, according to the descriptions from Pontius Pilate and also from Gamaliel, uh, Christ was said to be a Middle Eastern man, but that he had golden hair and blue eyes or um, gray gray or blue eyes, depending on, <clears throat> I guess, the lighting. And I, I realized that a lot of people do believe and especially amongst the biblical hebrews they believe you know christ to be dark-skinned but you know again that's not what it says in the the ancient accounts uh they and uh, i'll 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 tell you what the next break um during the next break i'll pull up a file and I'll read you the actual physical description from both Pontius Pilate and Gamaliel, the Pharisee that went out and um, met with Mary and Joseph. And and so you can you can hear directly from what the actual accounts say. So. Uh, Tammy asked, what book has the description of Jesus, Zen? Um, in the letter, the even this one that I'm about to read, uh, the report of Pontius Pilate to Tiberius Caesar on the crucifixion, the resurrection uh, of Christ, and what happened 
during, you know, the time of his crucifixion, the signs that were seen in the heavens and the earth, which I'm about to go into. And then also in the account from Gamaliel, as I said, which was in the first part, in the first show, um, the very first part where one of the one of the Pharisees goes out and meets with the the shepherds in Bethlehem and the residents in Bethlehem. And then afterward, Gamaliel goes and meets with um, not only one of the, well, they thought him to be like a mentor unto Christ, but, you know, this particular individual said that uh, there was nothing he could teach Christ because he knew everything. He was, you know, he knew him to be the creator. So how can you teach the creator about his creation, right? So anyways, um, Gamaliel goes out and meets with Joseph and Mary and, you know, speaks and asks them about the character of Christ. And so uh, there's a physical description given in that narrative as well. Um, but I'll share a couple when we were you know next break and then i'll do a show within a couple weeks uh where because i i have a lot of uh where the physical description of you know solomon and, and david and also um uh, sarah uh, that can be found in you know different manuscripts different passages and so I'll share those with you, and, you know, you can decide for yourself. But let's continue. All right. As I had said before we went to break, this is... Valesius's notes, Acta Pilati, or Pilate's report to Caesar of the arrest, trial, and crucifixion of Jesus. And I believe this is the same one that um, Pilate sent to Tiberius, which was found in the... Uh, the Library of Congress there was recently, I don't remember, it wasn't long, but that there was a, this manuscript was also found in the Library of Congress. Valesius Particulus, a Roman historian, was 19 years old when Jesus was born. His works have been thought to be extinct. I know of but two historians that make reference to his writings, Priscian and Tacitus, who speak of him as a descendant of an equestrian family of Campania. From what we gather from these writers, Valesius must have been a close friend of Caesar, who raised him by degrees until he became one of the great men of Rome, and for 16 years commanded the army. He returned to Rome in the year 31 and finished his work, which was called, in the year 30, 
which was called Historia Romania, he held the office of Praetor when Augustus died. And while Vincius was counsel. Valius says that in Judea he met a man called Jesus of Nazareth, who was one of the most remarkable characters he had ever seen. That he was more afraid of Jesus than of a whole army, for he cured all manner of diseases and raised the dead. And when he cursed the orchards, orchards or fruit trees for their barrenness, they instantly weathered to their roots. After referring to the wonderful works of Jesus, he says that although Jesus had such power, he did not use it to injure anyone, but seemed always inclined to help the poor. Vilius says the Jews were divided in their opinion of him. The poorer class claiming him as their king and their deliverer from Roman authority. And that if Jesus should raise an army and give it the power, he could sweep the world in a single day. But the rich Jews hated and cursed him behind his back and called him an Egyptian necromancer, though they were as afraid of him as of death. Valius Perticulus found in the Vatican at Rome. Pilate's report to Tiberius Caesar, Emperor of Rome. Noble Sovereign, greeting. The events of the last few days in my province have been of such a character that I will give the details in full as they occurred as I should not be surprised if in the course of time they may change the destiny of our nation for it seems of late that all the gods have ceased to be propitious I am almost ready to say, curse be the day that I succeeded Valerius Flacius in the government of Judea. For since then, my life has been one of continual uneasiness and distress. On my arrival at Jerusalem, I took possession of the praetorium and ordered a splendid feast to be prepared to which I invited the Tetric of Galilee with the high priest and his officers. At the appointed hour, no guests appeared. This I considered an insult offered to my dignity and to the whole government which I represent. A few days after the high priest deigned to pay me a visit, 
his deportment was grave and deceitful. He pretended that his religion forbade him and his attendants to sit at the table of the Romans and eat and offer libations with them. But this was only a sanctimonious seeming for his very countenance betrayed his hypocrisy. Although I thought it expedient to accept his excuse, from that moment I was convinced that his excuse from that, uh, sorry, although I thought it expedient to accept his excuse, from that moment I was convinced that the conquered had declared themselves the enemy of the conquerors. And I would warn the Romans to beware of the high priests of this country. They would betray their own number to gain office and a luxurious living. It seems to me that of conquered cities, Jerusalem is the most difficult to govern. Remember Zechariah 12. God said, I will make Jerusalem a cup of trembling amongst the nations. And so turbulent are the people that I live in momentary dread of an insurrection. I have not soldiers sufficient to suppress it. I had only one centurion and a hundred men. At my command, I requested a reinforcement from the prefect of Syria. who informed me that he had scarcely troops sufficient to defend his own province and insatiate thirst for conquest to extend our empire beyond the means of our whole government. I live secluded from the masses, for I did not know what those priests might influence the rabble to do. Yet I endeavored to ascertain as far as I could the mind and the standing of the people. Among the various rumors that came to my ears, There was one in particular that attracted my attention. A young man, it was said, had appeared in Galilee preaching with a noble unction, a new law in the name of God that had sent him. 
At first, I was apprehensive that his design was to stir up the people against the Romans, but my fears were soon dispelled. Jesus of Nazareth spoke rather as a friend of the Romans than of the Jews. One day in passing by the place of Silo, where there was a great concourse of people, I observed in the midst of a group of young men who was a, in the midst of a group of a young man who was leaning against a tree, calmly addressing the multitude. I was told it was Jesus. This I could easily have suspected. So great was the difference between him and those listening to him. Now listen closely. This is a description of his appearance. His golden-colored hair and beard gave to his appearance a celestial aspect. He appeared to be about 30 years of age. Nevertheless, have I seen a sweeter or more serene countenance? What a contrast between him and his hearers with their black beards and many complexions. Unwilling to interrupt him by my presence, I continued my walk, but signified to my secretary to join the group and listen. My secretary's name is Manlius. He is the grandson of the chief of the conspirators who are encamped in Etruria, waiting for Catalina. Manlius had been for a long time an inhabitant of Judea. And is well acquainted with the Hebrew language. He was devoted to me and worthy of my confidence. On entering the praetorium, I found Manlius who related to me the words of Jesus had pronounced at Silo. Never have I read in the works of the philosophers anything that can compare to the maxims of Jesus, one of the rebellious Jews so numerous in Jerusalem, having asked of Jesus if it was lawful to give tribute to Caesar. He replied, Render unto Caesar the things that belong to Caesar, and unto God those things that belong to God. It was on account of the wisdom of his sayings that I granted so much liberty to the Nazarene for it was in my power to have had him arrested and exiled to Pontus 
but that would have been contrary to the justice which had always characterized the Roman government in all its dealings with men. This man was neither seditious nor rebellious. I extended to him my protection, unknown, perhaps, to himself. He was at liberty to act, to speak, to assemble, and to address. the people, and to choose disciples unrestrained by any praetorian mandate. Should it ever happen, may the gods avert the omen. Should it ever happen, I say, that the religion of our forefathers will be supplanted by the religion of Jesus. It will be to this noble toleration that Rome shall owe her premature death, while I, miserable wretch, will have been the instrument of what the Jews call providence and what we call destiny. This unlimited freedom granted to Jesus provoked the Jews, not the poor, but the rich and powerful. It is true, Jesus was severe on the latter, and this was a political reason, in my opinion, for not restraining the liberty of the Nazarene. Scribes and Pharisees, he would say to them, you are a race of vipers. You resemble painted sepulchers. You appear well unto men. But you have death within you. At other times, He would sneer at the alms of the rich and the proud, telling them that the might of the poor was more precious in the sight of God. Complaints were daily made at the praetorium against the insolence of Jesus. I was even informed that some misfortune would befall him, that it would not be the first time that Jerusalem had stoned those who had called themselves prophets. An appeal would be made to Caesar, however. My conduct was approved by the Senate, and I was promised a reinforcement. After the termination of the Parthian War. We're almost to the end of this part.
being too weak to suppress an insurrection, I resolved upon adopting a measure that promised to restore the tranquility of the city without subjecting the praetorium to humiliating concession. I wrote to Jesus requesting an interview with him at the praetorium. He came. You know that in my veins flows the Spanish mixed with Roman blood as incapable of fear as it is of weak emotion when the Nazarene made his appearance. I was walking in my basilic and my feet seemed fastened with an iron hand to the marble pavement and I trembled in every limb as does a guilty culprit. And though the Nazarene was as calm as innocence itself, when he came up to me, he stopped. And by a signal sign, he seemed to say to me, I am here. Though the people spoke not a word, for some time I con contemplated without admiration and awe this extraordinary type of man, a type of man unknown to our numerous painters who have given form and figure to all the gods and the heroes. There was nothing about him that was repelling in its character. And yet I felt too odd and tremulous to approach him. All right, we'll be right back for a final segment. As a bookstore for truth seekers, it's our goal to make ancient manuscripts which were once held captive by secretive institutions available for public consideration. In our generation where wisdom has increased as Daniel the prophet foretold, we have access to many of the testimonies our early church brethren were persecuted for preserving. After being hidden for centuries, these manuscripts have been leaked from various sources throughout the earth and it's our goal to gather these sources into printable form to make available for all who seek the ancient way. If you're looking to deepen your studies of the biblical narrative, find these ancient manuscripts and more at sacredwordpublishing.com. partnership with Sacred Word Publishing goes further than the publishing of ancient manuscripts and weekly video content. You also make a huge impact across the earth in orphanages in Myanmar, India, Uganda, and Kenya. Your support is crucial for the development of the Ecclesia of Real Truth Seekers. We thank you for joining us in hosting Secrets Revealed, Momentary Zen, 
the Digital Readers Club, Ask Me Anything series, and other shows that have helped lead so many to the truth of salvation. Become even more involved? Please visit patreon.com slash sacredwordpublishing where you can partake in exclusive, interactive, patron-only content and help us continue shining the light of love in this darkened world. truth seekers are constantly studying alone. But there is a place where we can come together. The Digital Readers Club is our online ecclesia meant for those who've forsaken churchianity but still want the closeness of a family to study with. Join us every Saturday at 7 p.m. Eastern Time to put together the puzzle pieces of truth scattered throughout the ancient scriptures. everybody for a final segment I do see that Justin has the thumbnail of the the book there available on the screen and uh, I I think it is really just a beautiful really stunning book and again the information is priceless I mean you know again there's not very many places where an actual physical description of Christ is given in context and made available, uh, which is very controversial. You know, a lot of people um, believe that, you know, um, that he looks one way or the other or in whatever manner. There's even a, a text um from the native americans that describe y- yahushua 
um, in coming to them. They they believe that he was called a pale, um, the pale healer. And there was a description of him as he traveled amongst the Native American peoples. But I'm going to read the description that Gamaliel gives. And then I'll, I'll finish up with the the story of, um, of Pontius Pilate. Because the next part is about, you know, what occurs during the resurrection. But this is from the portion of the Testament of Gamaliel. As he speaks to Massalian, who was, you know, one of a very well-respected and learned man and he hung out with Christ and uh, was deeply moved by his knowledge. But anyways, he, he says, um, it is Massalian that tells him and gives him a description. And I'll, I'll just read a small portion before the actual physical description. It says, Massalian is a man of very deep thought and most profound judgment. All his life he has made the scriptures his study. He too is a good judge of human nature, and he is satisfied that Jesus is the Christ. He said that Jesus seemed to understand the prophecy by intuition. I asked him where Jesus was taught to read the prophecy. He said that his mother told him that Jesus could read from the beginning, that no one had ever taught him to read. He said that he, in making quotations from the prophets, was sometimes mistaken, or that he, or that his memory failed him. But Jesus could correct him every time without the scroll, and that sometimes he thought Jesus was certainly mistaken, but never, in a single instance, was he wrong. I asked him to describe his person to me so that I might know him if I should meet him. He said, if you ever meet him, you will know him. While he is nothing but a man, there is something about him that distinguishes him from every other man. He is the picture of his mother, only he has not her smooth round face. His hair is a little more golden than hers, though it is as much from sunburn as anything else. He is tall, and his shoulders are a little drooped. His visage is thin and of a swarthy complexion. Though this is from exposure, his eyes are large and a soft blue, and rather dull and heavy. The lashes are long and his eyebrows very large. His nose is that of a Jew. In fact, he reminds me of an old-fashioned Jew in every sense of the word. And so you see this description matches exactly that of what Tiberius uh, receives from Pontius Pilate. They both describe him as having golden chestnut hair and... Um, you know, eyes of soft blue or gray, depending on, again, the lighting and 
the eyewitness. So, so take it for you know what it is or whatever you'd like. But this is what the ancient accounts say themselves. All right, continuing. I'm going to try to finish up this last portion of the manuscript from the Archco volume on the Tiberius, the letter from Pontius Pilate to Tiberius Caesar. Jesus said, I unto him at last, and my tongue faltered, Jesus of Nazareth. For the last three years I have granted you ample freedom of speech, nor do I regret it. Your words are those of a sage. I know not whether you have read Socrates or Plato, but this I know. There is in your discourses a majestic simplicity that elevates you far above those philosophers. The emperor is informed of it, and I, his humble representative, in this country am glad of having allowed you that liberty of which you are so worthy. However, I must not conceal from you that your discourses have raised up against you powerful and inveterate enemies. Nor is this surprising Socrates had his enemies, and he fell a victim to their hatred. Yours are doubly incensed against you on account of your discourses being so severe upon their conduct against me. On account of the liberty that I have afforded you. They even accuse me of being indirectly leagued with you for the purpose of depriving the Hebrews of the little civil power which Rome has left them. My request I do not say. My order is that you be more circumspect and moderate in your discourses in the future and more considerate of them lest you arouse the pride of your enemies and they raise against you the stupid populace and compel me to employ the instruments of law. The Nazarene calmly replied, Prince of the earth, your words proceed not from true wisdom. Say to the torrent to stop in the midst of the mountain gorge. It will uproot the trees of the valley. The torrent will answer you that it obeys the laws of nature and the creator. God alone knows Whither flow the waters of the torrent? Barely I say unto you. But before the rose of Sharon blossoms, the blood of the just shall be split. 
Your blood shall not be spilt, said I with deep emotion. You are more precious in my estimation. On account of your wisdom than all the turbulent and proud Pharisees who abuse the freedom granted them by the Romans. They conspire against Caesar and convert his bounty into fear, impressing the unlearned that Caesar is a tyrant and seeks their ruin, insolent wretches. They are not aware that the wolf of the Tiber sometimes clothes himself with the skin of the sheep to accomplish his wicked design. I will protect you against them. My praetorium shall be an asylum sacred both day and night. Jesus carelessly shook his head and said with a grave and divine smile, When the day shall have come, there will be no asylums for the Son of Man, neither in the earth nor under the earth. The asylum of the just is the asylum of the just is there, pointing to the heavens. That which is written in the books of the prophets must be accomplished. Young man, I answered mildly, you will oblige me to convert my request into an order. The safety of the province which has been confuted, confided to my care. requires it. You must observe more moderation in your discourses. Do not infringe my order. You know the consequences. May happiness attend your farewell. Prince of the earth, replied Jesus, I come not to bring war into the world, but peace, love, and charity. I was born the same day on which Augustus Caesar gave peace to the Roman world. Persecutions proceed not from me, 
I expected from others and will meet it in obedience to the will of my Father who has shown me the way. Restrain, therefore, your worldly prudence. It is not in your power to arrest the victim at the foot of the tabernacle of expiation. So saying, he disappeared like a bright shadow behind the curtains of the basilic. To my great relief, for I felt a heavy burden on me, of which I could not relieve myself while in his presence. To Herod, who then reigned in Galilee, the enemies of Jesus addressed themselves to wreak their vengeance on the Nazarene. Had Herod consulted his own inclinations, he would have ordered Jesus immediately to be part death. Oh, immediately to be put to death. But though proud of his royal dignity, yet he hesitated to commit an act that might lessen his influence with the Senate, or like me, was afraid of Jesus. But it would never do for a Roman officer to be scared by a Jew. Previously to this, Herod called on me at the praetorium and on rising to the to take leave after some trifling conversation. He asked me what was my opinion concerning the Nazarene. I replied that Jesus appeared to me to be one of the most one of those great philosophers that great nations sometimes produced that his doctrines were by no means sacrilegious and that the intentions of the Rome of Rome were to leave him to the freedom of speech which was justified by his actions Herod smiled maliciously and saluting with ironical respect, departed. Just a few more paragraphs here. The great feast of the Jews was approaching and the intention was to avail themselves of the popular exaltation which always manifests itself out the Solemnities of a Passover. The city was overflowing with a tumultuous populace clamoring The great feast of the Jews, 
Oh, I think I read that one. I'll just I'll just read this sentence again anyways. The great feast of the Jews was approaching and the intention was to avail themselves of the popular exaltation which always manifests itself at the solemnities of Passover. The city was overflowing with the tumultuous populace clamoring for the death of the Nazarene. My emissaries informed me that the treasurer of the temple had been employed in bribing the people. The danger was pressing. A Roman centurion had been insulted. I wrote to the prefect of Syria for a hundred foot soldiers and as many cavalry. He declined. I saw myself alone with a handful of veterans in the midst of a rebellious city, too weak to suppress an uprising. And having no choice left but to tolerate it, they had seized upon Jesus and the seditious rabble, although they had nothing to fear from the praetorium, believing, as their leaders had told them, that I winked at their sedition, continued vociferating. Crucify him! Crucify him! Three powerful parties had combined together at that time against Jesus, first the Herodians and the Sadducees whose seditious conduct seemed to have proceeded from double motives. They hated the Nazarene and were impatient of the Roman yoke. They never forgave me for having entered the holy city with banners that bore the image of the Roman emperor. And although in this instance I had committed a fatal error, yet the sacrilege did not appear less heinous in their eyes. Another grievance also ranked, rankled in their bosoms. I had proposed to employ a part of the treasure of the temple in erecting edifices for public use. My proposal was scorned. The Pharisees were the avowed enemies of Jesus. They cared not for the government. They bore with bitterness the severe reprimands which the Nazarene for three years had been continually giving them wherever he went. Timid and too weak to act by themselves, they had embraced the quarrels of the Herodians and the Sadduceans. Besides these three parties, I had to contend against the reckless and profligate populace, always ready to join a sedition and to profit by the disorder and confusion that resulted therefrom. Jesus was dragged before the high priest and condemned to death. It was then that the high priest Caiaphas performed advisory act of submission. He sent his prisoner to me to confirm his condemnation and secure his execution. I answered him that as Jesus was a Galilean, the affair came under Herod's jurisdiction and ordered him to be sent thither. The wily Tetrarch professed humility in protesting his defense 
to the lieutenant of Caesar. He commanded the fate of the man to my hands. Soon my palace assumed the aspect of a besieged citadel. Every moment increased the number of the malcontents. Jerusalem was inundated with crowds from the mountains of Nazareth and all Judea appeared to be pouring into the city. I had taken a wife from among the Gauls who pretended to see into futurity, weeping and throwing herself at my feet, she said to me, Beware, beware and touch not that man, for he is holy. Last night I saw him in a vision. He was walking on the waters. He was flying on the wings of the wind. He spoke to the tempest and to the fishes of the lake. All were obedient to him. Behold, the torrent in Mount Kidon flows with blood. The statues of Caesars are filled with Gemini. The columns of the interium have given away, and the sun is veiled in mourning like a vestal in the tomb. Ah, Pilate, evil awaits thee. If thou wilt not listen to the vows of thy wife, dread the curse of a Roman senate, dread the frowns of Caesar. By this time, the marvel stares, groaned under the weight of the multitude. The Nazarene was brought back to me, and I proceeded to the halls of justice followed by my guard and asked the people in a severe tone what they demanded. The death of the Nazarene was the reply. For what crime? He has blasphemed. He has prophesied the ruin of the temple. He calls himself the son of God, the Messiah, the king of the Jews. Roman justice, said I, punishes not such offenses with death. Crucify him, crucify him, cried the relentless rabble. The vociferations of the infuriated mob shook the palace to its foundations. There was but one who appeared to be calm in the midst of the vast multitude. It was the Nazarene. After many fruitless attempts to protect him, from the fury of his merciless persecutors. I adopted a measure which at the moment appeared to me to be the only one that could save his life. I proposed, as it was their custom, to deliver a prisoner on such occasions to release Jesus and let him go free, that he might be the scapegoat, as they called it, but they said Jesus must be crucified. I then spoke to them of the inconsistency of their course as being incompatible with their laws, showing that no criminal judge could pass sentence on a criminal unless he had fasted one whole day and that the sentence must have the consent of the Sanhedrin and the signature of the president of that court that 
no criminal could be executed on the same day his sentence was fixed. All right. We didn't make it through, but uh, perhaps in the next go-round. God bless all. Good night. Thank you, everybody, for joining us for this video and this broadcast. We appreciate all of you, and thank you for your patronage. Please do like and subscribe and share with your friends. God bless all of you and your seeking.